Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Are we all as excited for donkeys as Diana? Get excited. You guys got to see these things. There's these little miniature things with little crosses on their back. I'm telling you, if you've got kids or grandkids, make sure you're here that day. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I mean, if you've got a donkey, you might as well throw in a donut, right? So that's good too. Uh, I've got a little bit of feedback coming in. I'm not sure if that's the monitors or the house, but uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here. I've been looking forward to having you guys here for this service. We have been in the one chapter book of Jude for, well, this will be the eighth week now. Incredible, huh? Uh, we are going to be wrapping it up, though. So this is the grand finale. Last night, I posted out on Facebook, make sure you're here, guys, or at least tuning in, because this is the grand finale of everything that we've been studying for the last two months or so. So uh, the book of Jude, let me, let's just get right into it, guys, okay? Because this is Communion Sunday. I want to make sure I leave us enough time at the end of service as well. So ushers, uh, be ready for that when we call. Uh, but the book of Jude, as we've discussed for weeks now, it's a warning for the end-time church. A warning for the end-time church. The acts of the apostates, as it's been called by many scholars. You know, while, while initially intending to write a letter centered on uh, the topic of our common salvation, the Holy Spirit has interrupted Jude. He's hijacked his train of thought and impressed upon him in a strong manner to write a letter that rallies the church together. And do doesn't the church need a good rally from time to time? Amen? How about especially if we're under attack? Don't we need to rally all the more, right? So the Holy Spirit has told Jude, you've got to rally the church and rally the end time church in, in, in particular, as a matter of fact. So in the midst, uh, uh, really to rally us in the midst of a prophetic attack that will be levied against this end time church. So he warns us that pretenders have crept into the church. Pretenders have crept in. Agents of the enemy have crept into the church unnoticed at that. So it's one thing if they come in and you see them, and it's obvious, right? Now, he's saying that enemy agents, agent provocateurs, have crept into the church unnoticed with an intent to do you harm. If indeed we are the end-time church, which it increasingly looks like we are to me, then he's saying they've crept in unnoticed with an intent to do you harm. And that's where we pick up from last week. So let's go to Jude. Our Bible pages have already flipped there, I'm sure, right? <clears throat> Verse 16 is where we'll pick up. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words. I'm reading the New King James translation on this one line because I just like saying speaketh great swelling words. <laughs> There's something about the King James language that is just lost and so cool. They speaketh great swelling words, which is another thing that is we're warned of, of these people that will creep into the church in 2 Peter, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 13. We'll be getting, by the way, to Revelation chapter 13 on our online Wednesday night Bible study this week. So if you're a eschatology, end times prophecy uh, interested person who has questions or wonders about the Antichrist and all that stuff, tune in Wednesday night, okay? But these people, they speak great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So where we left off last week, if you remember, this is the last verse we looked at. Can I see this first graphic? Jude is doing us a favor here. He's saying, here's how to recognize an apostate in your church. And if these people are going to be coming in, agent provocateurs, to do us harm to our unity or to our persons, 
We should look out. Jude warns us, here's how you recognize them. All right? The signs that he, he opened the epistle with are summarized here for us in everyday terms. Murmurers, right? Do you remember the murmurers in Israel? God was not pleased with those who were murmuring in the wilderness, right? He's like, I delivered you from Egypt. I literally opened the Red Sea before you, led you through the Red Sea, and now you're murmuring. Really? Right? Did you forget everything I've done for you in the past? And obviously that's something that we can be guilty of ourselves, isn't it? Now, these people, this is a signature of who they are, okay? They're murmurers as Israel was in the wilderness. This is a sin of no minor importance, okay? I've got several scriptures out to the side for you guys. If you're interested in, in studying any one of these things more at length, just take a snapshot of the screen and you can make a Bible study out of this one graphic, okay? It's a sin of no minor importance. John 6 uh, 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 and Ephesians 2, it's the hallmark of apostasy, murmuring. And then what else? Complaining. Remember, as we've studied through Jude, he talked about the angels, the, the angels that were set to watch over mankind, that God had set from his counsel to look over mankind, and they complained. They saw man, they were jealous, and they complained about their estate. So they complained. And just as those in Sodom and Gomorrah then, they walked after their own lusts, as we studied weeks ago in a study of Jude, amazingly. You know, fault finding may mark a professing Christian as one who has turned back from the truth. So these are things that we can, we can look for in others to be cautious of them, but they're also things that we can do some self-examination with, aren't they? Am I a fault finder? Have, has my mindset gone negative and all I ever do is look for fault, Right? Complainers may be apostates, according to Jude chapter 8, verse 10, which we've already read, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Again, take these scriptures and do some homework. Don't take my word for any of this stuff, as I always like to say. The Lord was displeased in the days of Moses in Numbers chapter 11 with the complaining. Uh, displeased the Lord in Mark chapter 7. Whereas we find a contrast to this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, when Paul tells us to do what? Be content in whatsoever state that we are in. Find contentment. Another thing about these guys is that they were having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Well, what in the world did that mean? It just basically means this. They're seeking the approval of men. Their mouths speak great swelling words. Why? Because they're promoting themselves. They're promoting their own abilities. A lot of times they want to get right in. They want to lead. They want to jump to the front. They have professionalism replacing the call of the Holy Spirit. Their personal admiration for personal gain is in front of where the Holy Spirit might be leading them. You don't know anybody like this, do you? Oh. If you do, I'll, I'll get you the apostates hotline so you can report them, okay? I know turning in your neighbor is big this year, so... But moving forward from verse 16, we're going to see a shift in tone. We're going to see a shift in tone. Jude shifts his attention off of the apostates to the believers. So this is going to be a really cool message, and it's a perfect way to wrap it up. Jude opens uh, with, opened with quotes from the Old Testament, and now he's going to close with words spoken by the apostles. So let's look at uh, verse 17, shall we? Verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, our protection against apostasy, church, if this is something that concerns you, and it should, our protection against it is the word of God. It's the word of God. Remember, as Jude says, remember the words of the apostles and of the prophets. Remember implies that you know the words. It implies that you've heard the words. It implies that you have read the word of God. So he's saying, remember, cling to it, re rejoice in it, cherish it. At least read it, right? 
but cherish it and cling to it. Remember those words. Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Every word of the word of God is pure. Did you know, does anybody in here know? We're going to do a pop quiz. I'm going to get you guys involved today. It's too beautiful. We should, service should be fun today. All right, so open question. Does anybody know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? Mary? Oh, you were close, Ron. I knew it was coming out, but Mary beat you to the punch. Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Does anybody know what it's about? Amen, sister. The word of the Lord. The longest chapter. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, All right. What words do we need to remember? Well, the words of the apostles and the words of the prophets, right? So what words do we need to remember? Verse 18, he tells us. The word of God always explains itself. It's not that confusing, right? Verse 18, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last times. That there would be mockers in the last times, they told you that. Who would walk according to their own lusts. Verse 19, these are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Holy Spirit. But this is interesting. Okay, so there in verse 18, it said, there would be mockers in the last times. They would walk according to their own lusts. I know we've heard that somewhere before, right? Uh, Verse 19, though, before I move on, these are sensual persons. I don't want you to be confused on this. And as a matter of fact, I really want you to get this because this is very important to understanding something we're going to talk about here in a minute, okay? sensual here. This transliteration, it's not really accurate considering what sensual has be, the meaning it has taken on in our generation culturally. This word really means in the Greek soulish, which means of natural man, right? And of course, natural man has lusts and whatnot, as, as we would typically think about sensual, but that's not what they're trying to get at it. They're saying of natural man. In other words, not of the spirit not sensual in the normal way of thinking of it, rather not of the spirit. They are not of the spirit persons who cause divisions. In regards to causing divisions on this same scripture, Martin Luther, in his commentary on this passage, uh, said that they make factions among you, right? So they all make factions among the body of Christ, dividing factions to themselves. And the more of them there are, the more factions there become and camps within the church. Whereas in the church, there should be what? Unity, right? One body, unity. So Jude is referencing uh, the words of the apostles here. So I want to spend some time taking a look at some of those words that he would be referencing. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and 30. So go ahead and take a second and turn there. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and 30. While you do that, I'll get a drink of coffee and give you plenty of time. I hear Bible pages. There's a few of them out there. Verse 28 through 30. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to the shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29. For I know this, I know this, that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, it's important to note here, this is an emotional goodbye for Paul, okay? His brothers and sisters know they may never see him again, and indeed they wouldn't. And what does he leave them with? Well, he leaves them with this warning. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, and this is interesting because we always like to think of these apostates or these bad actors as people that that sneak in because that's what we've been talking about. That's what Jude is saying. But what Paul is saying is that even among you, there are some 
Maybe some who have even grown up in the church and never really, never really surrendered their heart or never truly understood the gospel and salvation by faith. Maybe they're still trying to earn it. I don't know what it is, but, but these are not new members, but familiar people. These are cultural Christians. And we talk, have talked a lot about this when we talked about... Uh, uh, a while back when we talked about, you know, you've got Islam and Muslims and whatnot. You've got people that are fundamentalist believers, but the majority of Muslims that you meet on the street, they don't live what the Quran says or they'd be fundamentalists, right? And that's where the terrorism comes from. So there's a lot of cultural Muslims that don't even live what the Quran says, just like there's a lot of Christians that say they're Christians because they grew up in America and went to Sunday school, but they don't live like they're Christians, do they? And that's where it gets confusing for some. So this is a reference to cultural Christianity in here. So some will come in as savage wolves, but other will just be from among you. You'll never see it coming because maybe you've known them your whole life and they've always said they were a Christian, yet they were not. Isn't that frightening? You know? So these men will rise up. Let's keep reading. Speaking perverse things. Have you ever had a... a, 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 situation where you were in conversation with somebody that you thought was a believer, and all of a sudden they start saying these perverse things, and you're like kind of surprised, right? That's, that's what we're getting at here. Is they're speaking perverse things to draw, and get this, this is huge, to draw away the disciples after themselves, to draw away the disciples of the Lord after themselves. So they're making factions, but even those who are wolves from outside or from within, they are drawing disciples after themselves. Which again, what is the goal of the church? Unity. How many church splits have you guys witnessed? I'm just telling you, the older you get, the more you have seen where people have either risen up from within or come in from outside. They stir up, they cause divisions and dissensions, and they try to take part of the body with them somewhere else, right? With that in mind, let's look at our first graphic on this. Apostolic warnings. The first one here, wolves. Wolves, he warns us of. Paul said in the uh, savage wolves in the New King James in Acts 20, but in the King James, it says grievous wolves, not sparing the flock. This is important, guys. It's, it may be, well, I don't know if I can say it's more important now than ever, but it seems like it's happening more. Maybe it's not. It just seems like it's happening more now than ever, where there are Christian cults that are rising up among us, and they're all over the, the Christian TV channels as well. And they're, they're preaching different gospels that are infected with universalism, okay? We're infected with Gnosticism, and infected with, we're used to seeing uh, gospels being preached that are infected with legalism, right? We might even be used to seeing gospels that are preached with lawlessness, right? You know, on one end, you've got, I don't want to name names, but you've got certain churches that it's faith plus works equals salvation. And then on the other side, you've got complete, anything goes, you know. Well, there are many different cults. And that's really what they are. And it sounds like cult is a buzzword, but anytime you take the true gospel and you pervert it just a little bit and you create your own thing, that is a cult. It doesn't have to be David Koresh to be a cult, right? If it's not the truth, if it's another gospel, which makes it a demonic gospel, according to Paul, well, there's a lot of them rising up at this time, right? They go, but here's the thing that's interesting about them. You're their target, they don't go after non-believers. They go after the church specifically. They don't even bother with the unsaved. They build around, they, they take a truth and they exaggerate it, take it out of context, teach it wrong, and they build around it. And they truly fail to embrace the full counsel of God. And what is the full counsel of God? It's from Genesis to Revelation, and it's the same thread of grace that runs through the whole book. And you know what? You can explain the Bible with the Bible itself. You know? So, this is the warning that Paul left the Ephesian church the last time he saw him. And now Jude is passing it on to you guys. I want you to take this to heart. 
Jude is passing it on to you guys. How did the Ephesian church handle that warning that Paul left them with tears in his eyes? Guess what? We can actually find out because we have our answer in Revelation chapter 2. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 2. We did an awesome series of, uh, back in May, we started it, when we started Revelation, uh, almost a year ago now, right? Ten months ago. We did letters to the churches. And uh, if, you, if you missed that, I encourage you guys to go back and, and watch that series on the YouTube uh, page. But Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, let's read that. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, Jesus says, Write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, verse 2, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So they did well. Good news, huh? They took the warning and the, the heeding to heart, and they did well. But now Jude has laid this on you guys. So how will you do? How will you do? You understand now why uh, Jude used the word contend, right? Contend for the faith. You remember all the way back in week one of this series, Jude tells us, contend for the faith. Well, if contend, as we talked about back then, contend is a word in the Greek there that's associated with athletics. And if you look at a lot of Paul's writings, he's teaching in a lot of these Greek cities, writing letters to a lot of these Greek cities. What, what were the Greeks into? Anybody know? Olympics, right? So it's really a signature of Paul's writings. A lot of people uh, wonder who wrote Hebrews, and there's a lot of debate over who wrote Hebrews. When I read Hebrews and I see him talking about athletics, I'm like, oh, that's Paul. <laughs> right? Regardless of how he signed the letter, I think it's Paul. But that word, contend, is associated with athletics. And what do athletes do? I'm going to get you talking. What do they do? Train. Train? Yeah. Compete. Sweat a lot, maybe, right? Of course, I do that, and I wouldn't say I'm an athlete. <laughs> yeah, no, you ever seen a runner after a race? How do they look? Tired, exhausted, right? Spent. Spent. It can be exhausting. Can I get an amen? amen. It can be exhausting to contend for the faith, yet it is what we are called to do. Amen? Amen? Mm. So how will we do? Hopefully we'll do as well as the Ephesians did. They did pretty great. And so let us not grow weary. What other words of the apostles, though? Thank you, Paul, for that. What other words of the apostles might Jude be referencing when he says there will be mockers in the last times who walk according to their own ungodly lusts? Who else might he be quoting there? Anybody? Peter. Second Peter, chapter 3. Let's take a look. You know, what's, what's fun at a Bible-studying church, you know, who, who, a church who really studies the Word of God, I can ask questions like this, and I know I'm going to get answers. It's wonderful. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Let's read. Beloved, here it is again. That's who you are, by the way. Do you feel loved by God this morning? I hope you do, because that's, that's you. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Verse 2. Reminder, what? He's, or again, what's he doing? He's insinuating that you have known this, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Verse 3. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything's just going to keep going like it is. You keep saying the sky is falling. It's going to fall. It never falls. It's just going to keep. They have been asleep since they went to sleep. You're talking about a rapture. Rapture is not even in the Bible. I don't have to teach that right now. I was just, it's in there. If you're not sure where, I'll tell you later. You know, mocking, when he ties this to the beginning, I'm not going to jump back into this uh, because we taught it way back, I think one of these early weeks. They're really mocking creation itself because creation, by nature, God intervenes into his creation throughout history. And when they say that he's not going to intervene anymore, they're mocking the divine nature of how God has set everything up and everything he said he would do. Therefore, they're mocking everything that he says he is. It's interesting that, that mocking and scoffing, it's the same word in, in the Greek, and it's only used here in Peter and in Jude. Nowhere else in the Bible. Let's look at this apostolic warning. Can we see the, the next graphic? So we, we saw Paul, grievous wolves, all of that, <clears throat> now we add to that Peter, right? <clears throat> Scoffers. Scoffers, after their own lusts, essentially they are willingly ignorant and they uh, are deliberate in their rejection of truth and correction. So again, fair warning for us to look out for these things, right? But also valuable for us for self-examination. Amen. John actually dealt with one of these guys in uh, the third letter of John. Three John. Let me just briefly hit this. John, uh, three John, chap, uh, verse nine and eleven. Nine and eleven. What does he say? I wrote to the church, but uh, <laughs> butcher this word. Diotrephes. Diotrephes. You gotta love these Greek names who loves to have preeminence, in other words, superiority. You ever known anyone like that? Kind of nose up, right? Any, anybody in the church? Never, right? Never. Who loves to have preeminence among them, likes to be above them, does not receive us. Verse 10, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does prating against us with malicious words. In other words, prating means talking nonsense against us with deceiving malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So in other words, John's having to deal with one of these guys. First church, first century, first church, this guy is speaking evil of John the Revelator, refusing to receive them and forbidding anyone else to as well, threatening to cast anyone out of the church that receives them. Talk about dividing up the church. And he's in the church in a great place of influence back then. What do you, if, that, if that was the case back then, how do you think Satan... How much progress do you think that he's made since then in the church today? Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Getting back to Jude, though. Verse 19, these are sensual people, right? Persons. In other words, they're natural. They're not of the Spirit. They cause divisions, factions among you, not having the Spirit. I want to focus on this part of it because this is huge. This is a big piece for us. Not having the Spirit. This is important. It leads us to an obvious question, doesn't it? Are they saved? Right? Are they saved? Well, let's take a look at this per, uh, next graphic. Is an apostate saved? Picture one. Is an apostate saved? Well, one thing that we do know, and that we know of you, beloved, 
is that believers are spiritually minded. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 tells us that believers are spiritually minded. As a matter of fact, let's read that and then we'll come back to the graphic. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 reads, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And what is an apostate? Natural, right? Sensual or soulish, not of the Spirit. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of who? Christ. Amen. So getting back to our graphic, is an apostate saved? Pick one. Although a believer, get this now, this is important. Although a believer may be a baby, may be a brand spanking new baby, okay, in, in the faith, may be drinking milk, okay, may even yet still be carnal, okay? Because remember, uh, sanctification is a process. We can't let that be lost on us, okay? I... I don't struggle today with things I did five years ago, and hopefully in five years I won't struggle with things I struggle with today, right? It's a process of sanctification. So although a believer may be a babe or may even have some carnal ways in them, they are never in the Scripture said to be sensual or soulish or natural man. They are, why? Because they are born of the Spirit, the, more, the moment they metanio and believe, right? The moment that they repent, which means just simply to change your mind and you believe, it happens all in the same moment. The moment you choose to believe, you change your mind and you see, you believe, you suddenly you trust Jesus with your eternal salvation. You believe that the cross was enough, that the tomb was empty and that he has a place prepared for you. All right there. And in that same moment, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that your heart is sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing your inheritance. Amen? Amen? That's a funky baseline right there. <laughs> oh, guys. No matter how noble or giving, it doesn't mean saved. Do you get that? Because these... Savage wolves, right, who want to come in, they come in, what are they, and they speak swelling words, right? They come in, or they rise up among you, and they're great, you're great, everything's great, we're going to do this, and whatever, and that, and this, and whatever for their own personal gain, but you'd never know it, right? Oh, my. It doesn't mean saved, because only Jesus Christ can save, Amen? There's one name by which men can be saved. An apostate never became a child of God. There is no scripture that suggests that a natural man, which means without the Spirit, there is no scripture that suggests that they were ever anything but unsaved. Go to the next. Can we see the next graphic? The unsaved are soulish, natural men, and they are therefore dominated by the senses of the self, dominated by the psyche, not the spirit. They receive, remember, what did we, re we read about them? They receive not the things of the spirit, because why? It's foolishness to them, guys. And what is the foolishness of God? Can we see the next graphic? What is the foolishness of God? Guess what, guys? It is from the beginning to the end of that Bible you have. From the beginning to the end, God goes out of his way to do things in a way that you would never think of doing them. Does he not do that in our lives as well? I've got a plan. This makes sense. This is how it should go. Lord, I'm committing my plans to you, so make them happen, right? A better way to do it might just be say, Lord, give me your plans, right? Because how does it go? How does your plan that makes sense to you usually go? 
Does God usually do it that way? Not in my life, anyway. God, from the beginning to the end, has done things in a way, in a way <laughs> that we would never think of doing them. The foolishness of God, though, is, according to 1 Corinthians 1.25, wiser than men. And guess what the ultimate foolishness was? The most ridiculous idea to man was this, that the entire universe is redeemed by the death of a carpenter's son on a Roman cross and an empty tomb in Judea 2,000 years ago. Explain that to a soulish person that doesn't understand the spirit, doesn't have it, only wants to understand with their natural mind and psyche. It sounds crazy, right? But it is the foolishness of God. Not only that, that, that moment that he did, that moment, it would be the most pivotal moment in all of history that that carpenter's son would give his life. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Ooh, I got chills. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, says Romans 8, verse 9. The apostate lacks the distinguishing mark of the true believer. And what's that? It's the seal. The seal until that day of redemption. I just mentioned it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. The seal of the heart, guaranteeing the inheritance. So that is the foolishness of God. That is in an apostate. That's how we discern whether or not an apostate is saved. But what, it, what are you? What is a Christian then? Here, I'll give you one. In case you're confused, let's see this graphic. What is a Christian? A Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit, amen? Sealed by the Spirit. Indwelt by the Spirit. Taught by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. A Christian can cry out, Abba, Father. So cool. That term, Abba, when you break that down into the Hebrew, it's like saying, Daddy. So good. Yet an apostate knows nothing of these. So verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is your commission. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. What does it look like to build up your faith? Let's take a look at that. Build up your faith. Guess what this means, church? We have a responsibility. That's not fun, right? The church today would rather just like, can't we just have a big emotional service and during worship, I'll feel bad about all the bad stuff that I do and I'll come down and I'll cry about it and then I'll just leave and, you know, that's it. I'll probably just go right back to how I was. And then I'll come back next week and we'll do it again, right? We're not called, you know, we're, we come as we are, right? But we're not called to come as we are and stay as we are. Amen? And that has been a failing of the apostate church largely as a whole. But the Word of God calls it out. We have a responsibility to develop ourselves. It is a lifelong task. Guess what? I'm not done. Not even close. Ask my wife. Right? It's a lifelong task of spiritual building. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, talked about building the church. We're called to build the... That's what we're doing here, guys. Aren't we life story? Come on now, give yourselves a hand. 
We're building the church here. We're building a church church. So cool. That means, guess what? We're growing together. We're learning each other, right? It's uh, uh, iron sharpening iron, right? Build the church. Jesus told, uh, said of Peter, he said, you are the rock on which I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Amen? I've always loved that scripture. Number one reason I love that scripture is because gates are defensive. My whole life I grew up with this idea that I just need the shield of faith to catch all the arrows that are coming at me from the enemy, right? Well, gates are defensive. That means we're going to kick them in. Amen? We kick those gates in and we go in and we pull some out. We're about to perish in flames. Amen? The gates of hell will not prevail against you, but I recently learned something even, I mean, not cooler, but pretty cool about this. And I I won't rabbit trail too long, I promise. Did you know where Jesus was when he said that? If you look in your Bible, it says uh, Caesarea Philippi. That's at the base of Mount Hermon. And what, what we have been studying earlier, several weeks back in Jude, about angels who left their first estate, right? And we mentioned them earlier, right? When they fell, guess where they fell? Mount Hermon. Okay? Interestingly, there's a cave on Mount Hermon that culturally, every, when, when they were punished, when those fallen angels were punished, they were bound in Sheol. Well... Everybody in Israel at the time knew that there was a cave there on Mount Hermon, and they believed that that was the gates of hell beneath Mount Hermon, right? So Jesus, standing at the gates of hell, says the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And in that time, in that worldview, they understood that that meant far more than just what I said it was earlier, right? They understood this spiritual, angelic warfare piece of that. Interestingly enough, when those angels fell, and again, we've mentioned this before, the Book of Enoch is not canon. It's been corrupted largely in Alexandria, Egypt by Gnostics. But in chapter 6 and in verse 8, it talks about the number of angels that were counsel of God and betrayed God were 70. And what's the first thing that God, uh, Jesus does after he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you? He sent out 70 disciples, two by two. And what did they do when they returned? They were shocked that they had power over demons. We could spend a whole Wednesday night on that. That's that's what we're talking about, guys. That's the power that you have. The gates of hell will not prevail against you in the name of Jesus. So spiritual building is the church. On the foundation of Matthew chapter 16... Also on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ is the chief cornerstone of this thing we're building. Amen? And we, living stones, spiritual houses, according to 1 Peter 2.5, our works are works of stone versus works of stubble that'll be burned up by the flames, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Peter goes on to give us nine steps to building our faith in 2 Peter chapter 1. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing the word of God. How do you gain your faith? Grow your faith? Well, you're doing it right now, right? You hear the word of God. Peter also tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we need to desire the word of God as a newborn desires mother's milk. We ever have any nursing mamas in here? can speak for Amber. That's pretty fierce. Because little babies, when they're hungry, you ever hear a baby who's hungry crying out? Come on now. That's how we need to want the word of God, church. And of course, obedience brings blessings. Being obedient to it brings blessings. It's not salvational, but we read in James chapter 1, the blessings come with it. So, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What are we going to do? Next graphic, we're going to build. We're going to pray. We're going to keep looking, right? Praying in the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 8, keeping yourselves in the love of God. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. Let me say that again. We are kept for Jesus, according to 1 Peter chapter 1. This does not say, just, hey, make sure you keep on loving God. No, 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 no. It says, keep in, keep yourself in the love of God. What does that mean? In his love. It is his love that's in view, not our view. Think of the prodigal son for an example, right? What did the son do? Remember the story of the prodigal son? That's Sunday school. I don't need to go to the scripture on that, right? The son removed himself from the place where he could enjoy the benefits of the father's love. He removed himself from that place. He did not keep himself in the love of his father in Luke chapter 15, right? He removed himself. The father never quit loving him. He chose to leave. Jude is saying, keep yourself, or rather the Holy Spirit is saying, keep yourself in the love of God. Listen to his call for obedience, church. Building, praying, keeping, and looking. Looking for what? What are we looking for, guys? Looking here just simply means awaiting, awaiting, expecting, and anticipating. Whew. Verse 22. Verse 22 says this also. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. This sounds like Joshua 7, but we'll leave that for another time. So on some, on some, compassion. You get that? On some, compassion. Many struggle with doubt, okay? Many struggle with doubt. We need to be ready with an answer for them. But we also need to be ready with mercy, okay? as believers, we've always got to have mercy on standby. Amen? For others, for our brothers and sisters, this world wants to callous your hearts. This world wants to callous your hearts. Don't let it. But on others, he says, save with fear. So on some, compassion. With others, save with fear. It's, It's a strange term, save with fear, but really it just means urgent boldness. You get that? Urgent boldness. Some need to be plucked from an eternity of fiery judgment, and that's very real. We should have an urgent boldness when it comes to that, guys. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. Think of Lot, as we studied it weeks ago, right? What was Lot and his daughters? They were saved by God's intercession. There is a time and a place for urgent boldness in communicating the gospel. To those in your realm of influence, there's a time and place for that. Pray that the Holy Spirit be loud and clear on when those opportunities are before you. Somebody may have been hearing the gospel for their whole lives, right? They may be an unbeliever, and their mother's praying for them, their grandmother's praying for them, they've got brothers and sisters trying to tell them about the Lord, and God sends them to you. And suddenly, if you'll just have enough urgent boldness to speak to them in their place of random ability to receive the gospel, if you'll just speak it, they might receive it from you because they'll never hear it from their family because the prophet has no honor in his hometown, right? We need to be ready with an urgent boldness in season and out of season, guys. Mm. Saving with fear can also be understood to mean be careful, okay? Be careful that you don't get hung up in their sins while you're trying to minister to them, okay? So you may step into their world to try and bring the good news, all right? But you need to be cautious with that. Save them, but do it fearfully, okay? Uh, Can I see that graphic to drive the point home? Saving with fear? I think this is our last graphic, yeah. We're at risk, and we need to realize it. So we need to mingle our zeal for saving the lost with godly fear, okay? But at the same time, don't be tempted to tone down the gospel, all right? Urgent boldness. Jude closes now. Jude closes now with what is known as the grand benediction in theological circles or doxology, the grand benediction. He reads uh, verse 24, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Don't let that word be faultless. Don't let it be lost on you. Jude begins here. And he begins and ends with assurance. He begins the letter with assurance. He's now ending with assurance. He keeps you from stumbling. He presents you as faultless to the Father. Did you do that? Did you keep yourself from stumbling? Did you present yourself faultless before the throne of God Almighty? Who did that? Anybody know who did that? Jesus did that. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, quickly. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. That, I'll say that again. He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, or one might say, faultless. Who sanctified her? Who cleansed her? Was it because the church did such a good job? And was so holy, Jesus makes the church faultless, guys. This is how the Father sees you now when Jesus presents you to him with what exceeding joy. He's excited about you. Remember on that day, church in 1 John 3, 2 tells us that we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Jude, verse 25, in closing, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. Guess what? Glory, majesty, dominion, and power. The only, four, the only time that these four are used in the New Testament, or I should say the only other time is just one other time in Hebrews chapter 1. Glory, majesty, dominion, power. Both now, get this as we close, final point, both now and forever. This is a now versus eternity point that he's making, okay? The only thing that we understand is now, really. You know, we're standing on the sidewalk as the parade goes by right now, okay? We, don't, we can't co- possibly comprehend eternity right now. We understand now, though, don't we? One day, we will understand forever. I think we'd have a lot more urgent boldness if we could understand it right now. You know, the, we're trapped in this time domain, right? Our kids grow up, we're sad about that. Pa- our parents pass away, we're sad about that. We're stuck in this time domain. You know, the, the, reason, the reason that God put us in this dimensional domain, though, of time was to put us in a position where we had to make a decision. We've got a limited amount of time. How is he going to do that any other way, right? We've got a limited amount of time to make a decision. So let me just close on this. Have you made that decision? Have you made that decision? We'll invite Leith forward, and if our ushers could grab our communion and give me one as we pass it out. It's the first Sunday of the month, so we want to share the Lord's Supper together. As the Lord was with the disciples celebrating the Seder of Passover, it was truly not the Last Supper, as Da Vinci says, right? But the Last Seder meal, which is so prophetic of what Jesus did for us becoming the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of the Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. He looked at the disciples in that moment and he held up a piece of bread. It was, a, it was a matzah bread. So if you've ever seen matzah bread, it has no leaven in it. It has no leaven in it because leaven is symbolic of sin to the Jewish people. So for Passover, they don't eat any leaven because they get all the sin out of the house, right? Held up the matzah bread that looks like a saltine cracker to us, right? It's pierced with holes and it's kind of brown, has brown spots that represent bruising. It was prophesied 
that the Messiah would have no bone broken. So during the crucifixion, you know, as much as they beat him, he had no bone broken. How incredible. So he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, to remember that I gave my body for you. No man takes my life from me, but I give it willingly. I want you to remember, because God knows we forget, amen? He said, take this in remembrance of my body that was given for you. So church, let's do that together. And he held up the glass of wine at the Seder. It is known as the cup of redemption. He said, this is my blood that'll be shed for you. And indeed, his blood was shed and spilled out into the earth at Calvary. This is my blood that is shed for you. Take this, drink this cup of redemption and remember that it was done for you. So let's remember his love, church. Hmm. And drink together. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart in some way, whatever it is, if you feel compelled to start again, to lay down burdens, to lay down behaviors, speech, whatever it is, if you want a new start this morning, church, there's no better time and no better day than right here, right now, in the scope and view of eternity with urgent boldness to start again, to make that decision, to lay down your old life and begin a new one today, as the song said this morning. Whatever it is, whatever you're needing to surrender to him this morning, just raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. You can put it right back down. If you're here this morning, I want you to leave everything at the foot of the Lord as he sits with his, father and his Father's throne. Just leave it at their feet. If you want to say a prayer of rededication or perhaps salvation for the first time, you want to put your trust in him. We're going to pray with you. If that's you, whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time, raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. If you're online, if you're online, send us a message too so we can call and pray with you. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary. We thank you for your body that you willingly, freely gave for us out of the love that you have for us. Oh, Lord, our hearts are eternally grateful. Out of that greatness, we so desire to please you and walk in your ways, Lord. Continue to give us discernment for the days that we're in. Discernment, Lord, for the attacks of the enemy, Lord. Teach us to recognize them, Lord. Teach us to recognize you and what you're doing, Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask you that you'd refresh the spirits of your people here this morning, Lord. As they lay down at your feet, whatever they're laying down at your feet, Lord, and they're, they're declaring to you in boldness that they surrender their lives and their hearts to you and want to go forward in grace and walking with you, Lord Jesus. Receive what they bring. Now, church, let's all say this out loud. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. That you rose from the grave on the third day. I believe that secured my eternity with you. I put my faith in that finished work. Lord, walk with me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he go before you. 
May he follow after you and walk beside you. May you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. And enjoy this beautiful day. We love you guys. Thank you.